Brought to you by Leaving in the Ring, all boxing, no filter. Don't forget, we're, we're live every Monday night on YouTube and Blog Talk. It is Thursday, February 27th, and this is the Fistinatos Podcast on the Leave It in the Ring Radio Network. I'm your host, Evan Murkowski, former HBO sports marketing executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing, on your screen and behind the scenes. Email me at fistinatos at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at fistinatospod. We're brought to you by Ring Magazine and ringtv.com. Crazy last couple weeks. We'll go over... Actually, I was going to do an interesting sort of bigger question for the deep dive this episode. I was going to go into, are we in a boxing bubble? And kind of look at that topic. But we're not going to do that. We're going to go over Wilder Fury 2. We're going to go over all the ramifications. We're going to go over what the final week looked like. All that fun stuff. Um, Let's jump right into the review section because a lot happened in the last two weeks. Let's start with Friday, February 14th from Anaheim, California and on to zone. We had Ryan Garcia beating Francisco Fonseca by quite frankly, a ridiculous KO one at lightweight. I think like less than 10 total punches were landed for both sides. Also on the card, Jorge Linares beats Carlos Molina in a really strong performance by KO four uh, both these fights, these this was the expected result. The way it happened for both guys was pretty extraordinary. I mean, I think Garcia got hit once. I think he landed seven punches. His hand speed is ridiculous. He's obviously grown tremendously under the Reynosos and, and having a real trainer. Um, that's been covered pretty well in the last two weeks. I'll kind of leave that there. Linares looked really good back at 135. And, I mean, Oscar's talking about matching these guys up. Maybe it's not Staples in June. Maybe it's some other place, probably Southern California. But this would be a real test for Garcia. Like, these guys, they looked great. Garcia now has two first-round KOs in a row against, like, not terrible, you know, decent competition. Um, but all competition that he would, you know, he should have won. It was a heavy favorite going in. Is he ready for, for Linares? I mean, I think right now I'd favor Garcia. I think he'd learn a lot no matter what, um, but it's it's not. This is, it would be a tough fight for him. Um, if Golden Boy's going to make this this fight for June or July, give him a lot of credit. I mean, that would be a real. I don't know if it's like a superstar making performance for Garcia, but that immediately would put him in the discussion of you're not facing journeyman anymore with good records, or you're not facing, um, you know decent, you know, sort of C-plus, B-minus level fighters. Like, Linares is, you know, he's past his prime. He was sort of in that B-plus, A-minus territory at his peak. I think he's still a B-level fighter, you know, with the potential to do better. So that's a great test for him. Uh, There's still questions for both fighters. We'll get some of them answered if if they fight. Uh, So... I think Linares would be an incredible test for Garcia. I'd love to see what he keeps learning with Reynoso's. Enough enough here, though. Let's move on to the next card. The next night on Saturday, February 15th, from Nashville and on Fox, we had Caleb Plant 
beating Vincent Feigenbutz by KO10 for Plants IBF Super Middleweight title. Also on the card, Brian Perella uh, versus Abel Ramos. Uh, crazy fight. Ramos wins by KO10 with literally one second left on the clock. That's been covered <laughs> pretty well, but it was, it was a pretty amazing, pretty amazing ending. Diego Magdaleno beats Austin DeLay in the opener by unanimous decision in a 10-round fight. The show does an average of 1.528 million viewers. It ends up doing okay on a particularly dreadful night of TV as far as networks go. Let's talk about that for a second here. I actually saw a lot of chatter that this is a good rating. This is not a good rating. There are some promising signs here, but this is not a good rating. First of all, PBC on Fox finally got a halfway decent lead-in from the XFL, which did 2.3 million total viewers, but actually drew really well in adults 18 to 34 and adults 18 to 49, especially men. Uh, and boxing, you know, PBC on Boxing, it lost PBC Boxing on Fox lost quite a bit of that lead-in, and it kind of only did okay at retaining sort of that sought-after audience. But the good news here is they did okay at a time when everyone else did horrible uh, and everyone else really did particularly bad against getting any kind of audience that matters, at least in terms of networks. A lot of that was because of the NBA All-Star Game festivities, which were going on on Turner. That all, The skills competition drew over 5 million viewers. It got amazing ratings in the demos that matter. That was always going to be tough for PVC because the you know that demo and boxing have a ton of crossover. Probably the, the NBA, especially for something like that, and boxing uh, have you know th that might be the biggest crossover uh, that boxing would get. So you know, in light of that, it, it makes that this number look better. Um, you know, and I've actually mentioned on this pod now. This is probably the third year going where these are kind of throwaway dates. I'd prefer it was a lower-level fight, like, you know, maybe an FS1 fight. But look, that hasn't been the way it's gone. You know, considering the competition and the PBC on Fox beat out most of the networks in the demos that matter, not in terms of total audience, but definitely in the demos that matter. Um, yeah, we're doing okay. I think the main event peaked around, like, 1.8 million. Again, not where we want to be, but considering the rest of the landscape, we're, it's okay. We're doing okay. Um, let's talk about the in-ring stuff now for a second, despite, you know, everything like this, despite this being, as I said above, a like kind of a throwaway date, like this is actually one of the Fox cards where they, the PBC really got the format right here. I've, I've been one of the ones complaining about, especially on FS1 and sometimes on Fox sort of complaining about the format and it's not, this is not an issue unique to PBC. I've complained about this for every single uh, basically every single place that's doing boxing right now, um, except Showtime, unless they just do three stinkers, but um, which ha has not happened this year. It certainly happened last year a few times. But the the pacing of the card, so everyone's had major issues with time, the timing and the flow of their cards. I'm not going to break it down here, but I've gone over about, you know, I've gone all, all over. PBC in this one did it right, okay? Diego Magdaleno and Austin DeLay in the opener, 10 rounds. Then Perella and Ramos in the next fight, 10 rounds. 
that's exactly how you should do these cards that are on Fox and ESPN, you know, especially. Like, Showtime doesn't have commercials. I'll put them in a slightly different category. FS1 has been all over the place, uh, which I actually think it's fine that they shouldn't have the same level fights as Fox. Uh, but, like, FS1 shows some fights that they just really probably shouldn't be putting on TV. But, you know, in terms of Fox, like, these two matches as openers are exactly what you should be doing. Like, the Vegas odds didn't say they were absolute coin flips, but as a viewer, and even as a, especially as a casual viewer, it's very obvious that each fighter had to pursue a certain strategy to win the fight, and, and each fighter had a clear pathway to victory. So it's actually kind of exciting to watch each fighter try to impose their will on each other, and all four fighters had certain successes in parts of their respective fights, and you got to watch real strategy and tactics being applied in the ring, and what I think what actually makes this interesting for casuals is you you really see the strategy because the strategy is kind of on the obvious end. It's, you know, if you're a hardcore, it's like, oh, th- this guy's going to obviously try to do this, this other guy's trying to do that. But that's actually, you know, it's still fun to watch if you're a hardcore, and it kind of brings you in, in in terms of a casual. I mean, the other, you know, when you get into like a lot more of subtle and nuanced strategies, you really have to be a hardcore to understand what the fighters are trying to do. But this was like great. You got to see the fighters get tested, grow in the ring. Was definitely not the highest level of the sport, but it, as undercards, probably shouldn't be. Uh, and it it wasn't just getting in the ring and seeing an obvious winner or loser with nothing at stake. It was a huge favor on one end. Um, I, you know, obviously the main event put an end to, <laughs> changed the flow of that. It was a showcase and it mercifully ended before we saw any potential trouble for Feigenblitz. Like that was a sustained beating. Uh, Caleb Plant is very talented. He's fought very soft competition so far. So it's really tough to say exactly where he is and, and where he's going. I think we really need to see Caleb Plant fight someone on a higher level uh, soon. And look, he he did beat Uzgateki to win the title, but since he's had the title, um, if this isn't Tevin Farmer soft, but this is this is pretty soft. So look, look, Caleb Plant passes the eye test right now. So let's see him pass a bigger test in the ring. Uh, and, and that should be doable for for every you know for all parties. Obviously, I'd love to see the everybody would love to see the Benavides fight. Um, I think it's understandable for both parties, and really, I think especially for Benavides, I think it's understandable if it, if that isn't next um, or one of the next two. But this to me isn't. We're not in holdout for pay per view territory. We're in the winner of of that fight probably becomes obvious for Canelo as an opponent. So it's kind of like you win that fight and then you get your chance for a big payday. And then if you beat Canelo, then you're a star and then you can fight on pay-per-view. So, you know, I think, I think like that's, I think you're overthinking it. If you're saying, let's try to build these two guys for pay-per-view. I think it's more like the winner gets a shot at pay-per-view. So let's move on. Let's talk about, this Wilder Fury 2 rematch. It obviously happened on February 22nd. Let me just get through the results, and then we'll talk about it on a few different levels. Like I mentioned above, what the promotion was like in the buildup, 
what happened in the ring. Let's talk about the aftermath. As for the results, we had Tyson Fury defeating Deontay Wilder by KO7 to win the WBC heavyweight title. He's also the lineal champ uh, for however much you value that. Also on the card, Charles Martin defeats Gerald Washington by KO6 to become some version of an IBF mandatory. I'm not exactly sure what that is. I think he gets... I think, I think he is now in the next mandatory position, but obviously AJ is fighting Pulev as the mandatory first, so I think we got a little bit... There's probably a, a, a voluntary after that, but I'm way over explaining that part of it. Let's get to the good stuff here. All right, so and which is not, which is not Emmanuel Navarrete uh, defeating Jo Santisima by KO eleven to retain the WBO super bantamweight title. Nor is it Sebastian Fundora defeating Daniel Lewis by unanimous decision. Um, there's also a televised undercard that was aired on several different ESPN and Fox platforms, where I think ESPN had eight hundred sixty-two thousand watching an hour portion. There's a slightly longer portion on FS one. That did 441,000 viewers. Fox Deportes also had some viewership. All in all, it ended up being over 1.4 million viewers watching these fights. And I think most of them ended up watching Javier Molina beating Amir Imam to, um, to possibly, you know, to be in the mix, possibly for a title shot coming up soon. So let's go back to the main event, the one that matters. Let's start with the build-up to the fight. So Fox and ESPN did this a lot differently than pay cablers have done it in the past. And what they did really well is they just nailed fight week from a promotional standpoint. I'm going to talk, you know, I'm going to separate some terms here. And I guess before, I'll just say this up top, and we will get into pay-per-view numbers, but I'll say this up top. It appears they're going to do... 850 to 800, you know, 850-ish thousand pay-per-view buys. Maybe it's closer to 800, probably somewhere in that range. Maybe there's a world in which in which it gets a little bit higher. Probably we're looking at somewhere close to one-third of those buys are going to be digital buys, most of which are on the ESPN Plus platform, although Fox uh Fox's digital platform delivered, you know, over-delivered as well. So that's kind of how that broke down. I'm not going to bother going into numbers from each individual thing, but shout out to the reporting. This was one of the first pay-per-view fights where you didn't see numbers come out on Sunday or Monday. And I can just tell you from experience to get a number right. And I've talked about this in the past. I've, I've kind of actually, I really try to do it for Spence Porter and I've kind of just given up doing it at, at this point. It's like it's in addition to being pretty difficult and, and a lot of work. Um, it, it if you're not first, it's almost like you didn't you, you didn't need to bother doing this. But you need to get a number from Directv. You need to get a number from digital streaming, and that isn't just ESPN Plus and Fox Sports or you know, whoever the distributor is. I mean, there's other places. Fight TV is one of them. Uh, there, there's plenty of other places that do uh, digital distribution. Dish Network is still part of the satellite system in, in addition to, to DirecTV. Obviously, DirecTV used to be what you just used as the formula, and they had a pretty good read on, on buys initially. That is no longer the case. 
Um, and then there's the cable systems, most notably in demand. Uh, for all you people who don't know, in demand owns Comcast and, and Cox and Spectrum. Uh, or not in, in I should say Cox and Comcast and Spectrum actually own in demand. So, but in in demand typically distributes for most, if not all, of the, of the cable systems. Uh, the ubiquities part of this too. It to do it right, you've got to get a number from each of these individual places, and it's really tough to do. It's no longer a formula situation. I've talked about this a lot before, but I just want to say. It was nice to see no reporters or no one in particular falling into the trap of a digital number that looked good, got leaked, and became a talking point. Anyways, that aside, let's go back to the promotional things that happened here. So Fox and ESPN's programming in support of the fight. This was really good, I thought. You know, I don't think they did any one show on the level of a top quality 24-7 or all access in terms of just pure quality combined with, with sort of accessibility to the public, but they made up for that with volume. Uh, they kind of had a different type of show for a lot of different, you know, for different people. My personal favorite was Ring Science with from ESPN Plus with Andre Ward. That was sort of the nerdy, super boxing hipster version of it. it was, you know, and from Ward's perspective, I mean, he's obviously commentating for ESPN, so it was more Fury-based in terms of looking at the first fight, but it was a really good job. I also, on the, on the Fox side, I thought Inside PPC was really good. They did a roundtable that was kind of really elevated. I thought Steve Cunningham in particular did a great job. I thought Sean Porter did a great job. Like Sean Porter, I mean, this is another side. Sean Porter has grown tremendously as a TV personality, and I'd love to see more of him actually commenting on live fights. Uh, but let's get back to it. the FS1 and ESPN talk shows and the Sports Center type of shows. Like, they just blew that out of the water on Fight Week. ESPN and Fox did. It really felt big. It truly was in the public consciousness and 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 sort of with how they just did that. Like, a lot of the shows were actually based in Las Vegas. Uh, and, you know, these types of shows, I mean, part of this, this is what I've talked about in the past when I've said these kind of events, just they feed the beast on these types of shows. So these types of shows, especially during a really slow week like this one, which is the week after the NBA All-Star Game in the middle of February, not much going on, a pay-per-view like this was perfect. It fed the beast. And it actually, it, it created talking points and content for all, you know, just hours of programming on ESPN and, and FS1, basically. And I think this is something to, you know, to go on another tangent. One of the problems with Cinco de Mayo and Mexican Independence Day weekend is that they really conflict with major moments in other sports that are going on. For Cinco de Mayo, there's NBA playoffs, there's a host of other things going on. Uh, and if you don't have a big enough sort of headlining fight, it's really easy to get lost in a shuffle. I mean, remember, that day alone, usually you're going to see a couple Game 7s of the first round of the NBA playoffs, like Game 6s or Game 7s. Usually you're going to see the Kentucky Derby. You're starting to get into the NHL territory where the games start mattering. 
and the NFL draft has sort of just happened. I mean, you're kind of you're kind of out of the woods on that, but you're, you're still there's that burst of NFL the week before, so it kind of takes a little bit away from it. Um, you know, baseball still early enough that you're not in the dregs of summer. There's still some optimism. Interesting to point out that like this happened in, during this week in February when Floyd fought Connor and they broke records. Like he did that, or you know. They didn't break the record, but they finished second. That happened in August, a really similar time to this window in February. And look, if I was at a major network, I'd be looking to sort of shoehorn events like this into these types of timeframes in terms of the schedule. Um, and going back to these sort of daily programs, you know, I think... I wasn't in the media center, but I think it's sort of, if you were there, it sort of made it clear, like, this thing felt huge because all these big TV personalities were out there, they were doing their shows from there, and the networks were just putting so much juice behind it. You know, so, I look, I've been at events before where, like, the media center is, quite frankly, been a little depressing, and you can tell when certain TV or print reporters, like, quote unquote, got the assignment or whether they actually didn't care, you know, about boxing or whether they were psyched to be there. I mean, but like when the event's really big, usually you feel, you, you, you kind of feel that in the media center. And I think a lot of people felt that, um, you know, it, when, when a big network gets behind it, it, it's just, it's a different attitude. So in terms of this part of the promotion, Absolutely A-plus for both ESPN and Fox. In terms of marketing the fight, let's separate let's separate promoting the fight with their programming from marketing the fight with paid media for a second. And while both Fox and ESPN blew it out of the park with their own programming to promote the fight, the paid media part did have some holes in it. A lot of the paid media was on social media, and they didn't do a lot of things that pay cablers have traditionally done with the cable systems, where you saw like you know, local TV ads or you know the cable systems really getting behind it. And I do understand from this point, you know, Fox and ESPN probably looked at those tactics um, as they start to get time intensive, they started to get expensive, you know, and from an overall standpoint. Why spend money on that when they can just use their programming to push the event? You know, in marketing, we call that earned media. And you sort of get, you know, it's not just earned media. Like, they actually get paid to sell ads on that programming. So, like, why pay for your own ads when you can just put, you know, basically push it on your own programming? And that makes sense. I do think... Because of this, they probably left some buys on the table from the cable systems. And if you looked at it, and this has been well reported on at this point, I'm recording Thursday night, you know, the cable systems had a really weak turnout. Uh, and, and you know, that's, that's, clearly, that's clearly why. So, you know, the other thing is Fox News Pan really pushed seeing it. Uh, and I, this actually could have been, you know, PBC and Top Rank 2, I'm not actually sure. Uh, usually it is the, the, actually the promoters that make these deals. Usually they make them um, 
and and this is I'm talking about the sort of the Johan the bar stuff that you know the the Fandango uh, movie theater stuff you know where you can go see the fight at a bar or movie theater. So usually, especially the movies, you know, not necessarily jo- Johan. I think actually does provide some real value. Usually with the movies, you're just doing it to for brand awareness and. Um, you know, you don't necessarily look at it as it's a huge, you know, this really cuts into your pay-per-view buys. The bar stuff though really does. And I mean, I actually think this was a pretty robust business for them. So I think they'll, you know, they're definitely going to walk away with several million dollars from this. Uh, It does give people a cheaper option than ordering the fight at home. And I think when you push the fight on social media, like it's one of the results is you might end up getting more people to go to bars and, 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 and movie theaters to see it than you would ordering at home. I think that, you know that's probably an effect that you saw there. Um, I'm going to have to critique the social media plan. I'll just go ahead and say here, I wasn't specifically targeted. Actually, other than on Fox or ESPN, I didn't see a single ad for the fight, um, which you should, let's talk about this for a second, let's talk about the social media perspective for a second. You can't just depend on ads on your own network to sell a fight like this. Like You actually have to go off channel and do paid media in other places. I mean, anybody... <laughs> Anybody who's been paying any kind of attention at all to politics can, can, you can see why. Like, Mike Bloomberg can get his message out really, really well with paid media. Quite frankly, if you watch him debate, much better than he can in a debate. And so there is a huge advantage to doing paid media, uh, especially, you know, paid ads on other channels. With the social media, I actually didn't get targeted, but my wife did which I think, you know, first of all, that's totally anecdotal, you know, so take it for what it's worth. Like that's, you know, again, it's anecdotal. But if you talk with other people, I think it's like a microcosm of what happened here. Like they went really, really broad for awareness. And what that ends up doing is making some people who have never been hardcore fans, it makes them aware of it and it makes the event feel bigger but it doesn't necessarily translate to pay-per-view buys. In fact, I think, you know, it may have hurt them, like going back to the bar movie theater, you know, business, like it probably helped that. It probably hurt pay-per-view buys at home. Long-term, it's probably a really good strategy because it makes sort of casual fans part of the culture a lot more and it builds the boxing brand. And I think you can look at the way the UFC has done this strategy like they've made it work really well for them but short term if you're just looking at did it pay your bills for the specific fight you probably miss out on some revenue um, and granted you probably do end up getting people who would never have bought it at home buy it at home or, or sorry go to a bar or whatever but I think it also there are definitely candidates to buy the fight who normally would have bought it at home and because if they feel like it's getting too big sometimes they may choose to go watch it at a bar or something like that so, you know, this is, you know, this is sort of getting into some of the stuff where, you know, I'm not going to say they, they really messed up, but like, like if you're wondering why, if you went into it expecting a bigger number, 
than what it ended up being. Like these are some of the reasons probably why the, the you know it didn't hit a million or one point one or one point two. Um, the other thing I'd say is they they still they it, it felt like they marketed for TuneIn. Um, this is something I've criticized Fox for in the past, uh, and I'm you know quite frankly I'm sure you would have said the same thing about ESPN had they done more pay per views. Um, th- this is just something pay cablers do better than you know than ESPN and Fox. ESPN and Fox are built to market for TuneIn, and they're built to make people aware of an event that's usually free on TV to watch. Marketing for pay-per-view, you have to market, you have to really hit a much smaller base hard because they are purchasing a luxury item. Uh, And so, you know, I've mentioned this before. I I basically mentioned it on the last podcast. That's one of the disadvantages of social media. I think in a lot of ways, social media is an inch deep and a mile wide, and you really need to go sort of a mile deep and an inch wide for most pay-per-views. Now this one, you probably, it was probably good to market, you know, a little bit bigger than that, but still, um, you know, that's, you know, I think those are all minor points. I think obviously like the, I shouldn't say obviously, but probably the biggest reason this number didn't hit a million is the cable system portion. The cable systems have to truly be engaged. ESPN and Fox didn't do that part as well as pay cablers have done in the past. And to be fair to ESPN and Fox, they have a vastly different relationship with the cable and satellite systems. Um, so this shouldn't be a shock. I mean, HBO and Showtime, they get such a crazy portion of their revenue from cable and satellite companies that they will bend over backwards and basically do whatever cable companies and satellite companies want. Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll just, they'll be, they'll go out of their way to be great partners. ESPN and Fox are usually playing hardball with these companies it's a much more antagonistic relationship where they are having difficult negotiations over how much they should charge for their, you know, for their stations that, that the cable companies are basically going to carry. Um, so it's tough. Like that's a very difficult thing to handle. That's probably why they weren't able to do it as well. But uh, if, you know, if I had to offer, one more critique as to why they didn't get to eight, to a million, why they're at eight, eight fifty, whatever that you know, whatever that finally ends up being. Uh, the press they didn't do a press tour, and they kind of had like two weird televised press conferences in LA. You know, that were basically made for TV, and I think these can actually be a really valuable thing to do. They are expensive, but the promotion starts earlier when you do this. You do get a ton of earned media in general, and you get a ton of press writing stories about the fight that may not have been writing stories about it from the get-go. This, again, this is something, this kind of falls in that category of, like, tried-and-true sort of pay-cabler tactics. Uh, and, and, and to be fair to the promotional companies, you know, like, this is not top rank or, or PPC's first rodeo. I mean, they've done this a million times too. So I don't know why that didn't happen. I mean, we, we kind of knew these guys were fighting for months before the fight was actually made. Uh, it always gets dicey when it's two different companies coming together to make a fight and then two different networks doing it. Maybe that's part of it, you know? So I think if you're looking for 
small dings in the strategy, those are what I would point to as to why I didn't get to a million. But to really be fair, they're all small dings, maybe with the exception of the cable company tactics. And then you still have to say that they made up for all of it the week of the fight and three days out, which is by far the most important part of the promotion. This was still one of the most impressive promotional pushes I've ever seen. Kudos for them. You know, these are large companies and departments basically putting this event on a blast, putting it in casual sports fan consciousness, you know, huge amount of coverage in earned media. Um, Like, this was incredible. You know, like, this is what ESPN and Fox are capable of doing. They obviously, like, they're going to at least double, almost triple the number of pay-per-view buys from the first fight, which is... And I don't know, that might be unprecedented. I don't know, there might be some weird situations where, you know, maybe I know there are sometimes rematches or, you know, Pacquiao Marquez, I think that started not on pay-per-view and ended up being, you know, huge on pay-per-views. You know, maybe there are situations in the past where, uh, you know, you've seen stuff like this before, but they did a, they did a really good job. Let's look at the question of whether they made money or not. Aram said the break-even point was 850,000 buys. Uh, in one interview, there were some other comments that made it seem like it was closer to a million or 1.1 million. I think the big question is what kind of buys are we talking about? It's really tough to give a buy rate that's actually like a break-even point because you don't know how many of those buys are digital. And, and for all those wondering... Cable companies have different splits from each other. It really depends how much effort they put behind marketing the fight. And cable companies that put a lot of effort behind marketing the fight are going to have a different split than cable companies that put no effort behind marketing the fight. So, and in fact, quite frankly, cable companies that put no effort towards marketing the fight have a split much closer. It's not as good as digital, but it's much closer to digital. So, you know... The fact that digital buys did so well probably reduced the break-even number of buys. And there's a huge gate for this fight. It was like almost 17 million bucks. You know, I don't know how it did internationally. I'm assuming the United, you know, the UK market was robust. And I'm assuming everyone is okay with these results. I'm assuming that there's probably some optimism. Um, you know, probably what happened is everybody felt really good about it. And then there was optimism that the fight would top a million and maybe even get to 1.2, 1.3 million. Uh, And I think everybody at the networks and, and at the promotion companies learned a lot. They absolutely nailed certain parts of this. Um, You know, and actually one of the interesting, I'll just total shout out to, to this tactic the walkouts for the fight were like A plus level, and showing the walkouts live on SportsCenter was a fantastic idea. Credit ESPN for doing that. That was amazing. And and both walkouts were amazing. I mean, Fury's, I think, is like right up there with some of the best I've ever seen. Wilder's was also like probably not as good as Fury's, still in the upper echelon of best walkouts I've ever seen and best costumes I've ever seen for sure. Uh you know, it's kind of a kind of a shame that it's now being used as a reason for his loss. 
but back to overall thoughts, I mean, you still have to look at this and say, like, there's going to be some tweaking and maybe a couple, you know, one or two major changes. But, like, the first fight did 325,000 buys. Deontay Wilder's last pay-per-view fight, I'm not even sure, got to 250. It was probably 225. I know I, I know reports were that it did 275. I don't think it did. Um, that was against Ortiz for the rematch. Fury fought on ESPN Plus twice against nondescript opponents that didn't mean much. I mean, it's pretty remarkable that they way more than doubled pay-per-view buys and came close to tripling the buys. Like, that's, like I said above, that's that's remarkable. So you've heard the critiques on it, but the overall takeaway is that it was impressive and that hopefully they they learned from this. I mean, I think... I think they, you know, it's weird. They almost suffered from having such an impressive media center because I think journalists who were there probably thought that the media center was buzzing like it was a pay-per-view that was going to do 1.4, 1.5 million buys, which is really rare. Um, And, you know, that was just sort of ESPN and Fox pushing it. You know, in, in a way that, quite frankly, you know, HBO certainly is not capable of, and Showtime, other than, you know, a few CBS plays, not really capable of. Um, But HBO and Showtime still have some institutional advantages on their side, and I think the perfect promotion is going to take a little bit of both to truly maximize buys, and we're not quite there yet. So what happened in the ring? right, so this part, pretty shocking. Most of the time... With Tyson Fury, you feel like he's not really going to be honest with you in terms of how he's training for a fight, what the buildup is. He was really honest here. He turned, you know, went for the KO. It turned out to be the perfect strategy. Uh, you know, a, a shout out again to Steve Cunningham. I heard him talk in several shows in the buildup to this fight. You know, in podcast too, and like Fury, I thought <laughs> it was really interesting because he did. He actually was doing a wrestling move with the headlock and. It's something like, especially for me, like I've, I literally was drilling, I've drilled that move for over a decade of my life growing up wrestling and like a headlock like that and controlling the head the way he did is great for a number of things you can do in wrestling. And and one of the ways, one of the things that's like a common thread in wrestling and boxing is you can really use it to wear an opponent down. It takes a lot of effort to get your head back up like that in, in either sport. Um, and you could tell that it was one of, you know, it's funny because Wilder gave this excuse about, well, not excuse, a reason that his, you know, the, his costume weighed him down and really you could say, well, getting hit weighs you down. And also like a 270 pound man putting you in a headlock weighs you down and, and putting his, all his body weight on your neck that weakens your neck. Like that's one of the strategies behind doing it. It takes a lot of effort to do it. Uh, you know, Fury, obviously, he came forward and put leverage on his shots. And, you you know, I'm sure with Wilder, he'll need to figure out how to combat that because, you know, Fury's probably going to do it again. And probably every opponent Wilder faces from here on out is going to try and do it. Uh, but let's not forget, in rounds one and two, there were two or three right hands that Wilder almost landed that might have put Fury out. So don't even though Fury dominated this fight, uh this isn't just, you know, Wilder has no pathway to victory. He definitely does. 
um, you know, I normally don't talk about ring strategy much on this show, but I think one of the important things for this fight, especially for the commercial viability of everything moving forward, is how it ended. I mean, you know, coming in, most people thought that Fury would just sort of, you know, it'd either be that Fury would outbox Wilder, um, but Wilder would always be in the fight because he has great stamina. He's always in great shape. And in the later rounds, usually he's that'll give him so much time to get down the timing of Fury. And he's already had 12 rounds of Fury. Uh, so he's a great candidate to la- land knockdowns later in the fight, which he obviously did in the first fight. So, you know, we didn't see that here. And I don't think this is a case of like Wilder just doesn't have a good chin. Um, you know, the end report is going to show that Fury dominated the fight. But, you know, up until that first knockdown, it was very tense. And it was tense because we were witnessing a dangerous game where Fury could have been landed on at any point and he could have been knocked down. Uh, you know, he, he was being almost too aggressive, uh, which surprised Wilder. But had Wilder been prepared for that type of strategy, it might have been, you know, hunting season. I mean, he might, you know, he might have been able to just land the right hand. So, I, you know, it's interesting because casuals witnessed Fury's dominance, and that actually might make the rubber match a little bit of a harder sell than you think. But I, but if if the people you know who are making the the, the materials for the third fight do everything correctly, I think you will see you know Wilder if he learns from this and if he can come up with a strategy to combat Fury coming forward, he has every chance of of knocking out Fury in the third fight. So I think that's really important. And I think that's a key question to how commercially viable the third fight, you know, could be. And I don't, I don't know what the minimum guarantees are for the third fight, but you know, how, how Wilder handles this part will tell us a lot about the rest of his career. And, and how much money these guys are going to make, and, and, and it gets into a lot of other stuff. I mean, you know, again, I'm of the opinion Wilder's team probably did not prepare him for the game plan that Fury brought in. And I can't say I totally blame them because Wilder's team has been excellent up to this point on focusing on strategies that just set up the knockout. And Wilder has shown the ability to be patient and stick to the game plan of strategically setting up a knockout at all costs. So he's totally capable of winning in July. I mean, it sounds like they're going to fight again in July. So before we get into that, let's, I think it's really important to go back to that fateful meeting at zone and just look at the impact it had, not only for Wilder, but for boxing. In, in heavyweight boxing especially, but let's look at all boxing because I, I think this is, inevitably, this is just part of the discussion with Deontay Wilder. I mean, this this changed how we're watching boxing right now, and, and, and there are so many reverberations. I mean, like I said, first of all, it changed Wilder's life in a positive way forever. Getting offered four fights and $120 million dollars or even if it was three fights and a hundred million dollars, I don't care which way, you know, I, I heard both. It changed the fortunes of so many different parties and it almost didn't matter whether he took the deal or not. You know, I, I don't want to just look at it as like, Oh, 
Wilder's an idiot for turning that money down. Or, oh, Wilder did okay without that, so you're an idiot if you thought he should have accepted it. Like, that's like, you know, basically people on Twitter being idiots. Like, let's set aside that and let's just look at the ramifications first of all. First ramification of that meeting is that Wilder's pay for any fight at a minimum doubled and probably tripled based on the landscape of what he was looking at. So PBC was forced to dramatically increase his pay guarantee for the next fight or two, no matter who he fought. What are the ripple effects there? Well, Showtime stepped up to pay a crazy amount of money to have Wilder on the network, not even on pay-per-view. They probably did that because they wanted to make sure they'd get Wilder's next pay-per-view fight. Had they known that they wouldn't get either of his next two pay-per-view fights, they probably wouldn't have done that. I mean, they probably were assuming at that time they would get Wilder versus Fury 2. And possibly another... They they thought they were probably in the Wilder business forever, basically. Um, Well, what are the ripple effects of that? As fans, we got a series of really bad fight cards from Showtime because they basically broke their pay scale to get Wilder under that series of assumptions. So Showtime's ratings took a major dive, and many in the industry thought they were literally getting out of the boxing business. I mean, they're clearly not getting out of the boxing business, you know, at least this year. And, uh, you know, they've actually had some nice fights so far this year. They've had to fight that negative perception, you know, for months, all right? Second ripple effect is PBC had to likely dip into their own war chest just to make up the rest of the guarantee for the Showtime fight. I mean, I think Showtime broke their pay scale and PBC had to dip in their pockets to give out millions of dollars you know, to to Wilder to make sure he wasn't going over to the zone. You know, I'm not sure that affected the viewer in any way, but it certainly affected other fighters at PBC because obviously money is a finite resource, and if you're giving it to one fighter in such a big way, other fighters aren't getting it. You know, third ramification. When Showtime didn't get the next Wilder fight, PBC probably had to do some major damage control with that relationship, and you could feel Showtime's frustrations you know, basically with some of their public comments, you know, at times. Fourth ramification, well, DAZN needed a different Anthony Joshua opponent than Deontay Wilder, and they were willing to pay really good money for it. So initially, it wasn't going to be a PBC fighter, but then Big Baby Miller failed (laughs) in spectacular fashion, failed a PED test, and several PBC fighters were strong candidates. So in order to get Luis Ortiz not to take that $7.5 million payday, PBC needed to promise him a comparable payday in their stable, and that meant that they were guaranteeing Wilder the $20 million he would have gotten from DAZN, and Ortiz the $7.5 million he would have gotten from DAZN to take the fight that Wilder didn't take. So that put a ton of pressure on Wilder Ortiz, too, to do well on pay-per-view, and it clearly underperformed. If you're wondering why PBC and DAZN aren't best of friends, that is one of the reasons. Uh, in addition to promising Ortiz a bunch of money, they also clearly made at least some kind of future promise to Adam Kanaski and, you know, n- you know, not to take that to zone money. Although that seems a little bit more vague, um, you know, and I have no idea if he's promised a future payday of seven and a half million, but he's definitely getting paid a lot more now because of that situation. Fifth ramification from that meeting is that it virtually guaranteed that Wilder would face Fury again because... That was the only fight where you could assume Wilder could do a large enough pay-per-view numbers where he could actually 
match the offer of $80 million for two Anthony Joshua fights. What did that mean? Well, it gave ESPN and Top Rank a seat at the table. And, you know, maybe if you're PBC, that isn't such a bad thing, but you probably would have preferred not to do that. And I'm not going through all this to criticize the decision that Wilder made. In fact, like, I'm actually really impressed that PBC and Shelley Finkel helped him make that decision because if you're PBC, it's like, it's certainly a hell of a lot easier to just take the disown money, take your management fee, and use the Fox dates, you know, both on Fox and Fox pay-per-view and the Showtime dates to build up other fighters. Like, it's much harder to choose the path they chose. But you can see why this meeting became so troublesome for PBC. I mean, like, in a lot of ways, it was great specifically for Deontay Wilder, uh, but it was terrible for PBC. Like, they ended up having to give every single top heavyweight on their roster a big pay raise, some of them ridiculous pay raises that were very risky and ultimately likely ended up with them losing money on their fights. They had to risk hurting their relationship with Showtime, which has historically been their top relationship in the business because of this meeting. They had to give Top Rank and ESPN a very real seat at the table uh, in a way that they wouldn't have wanted to. I mean, had Wilder had much lower and more realistic purses, he could have fought Brazil on Showtime for a raise, but not quadrupling what they had previously paid for him. He could have fought Ortiz on pay-per-view for a much lower guarantee for both fighters, and that fight might have actually been profitable. Had the fight been profitable, they could have had Wilder fight Kanaski on pay-per-view, or obviously, you know, the dream scenario would have really been Ruiz beating AJ in the rematch, which we'll get to in a sec. Uh, but what all that would have done well, it would have forced Fury to keep fighting on ESPN Plus against no-name opponents, and they could have waited out ESPN and held significant leverage over making that fight. I know fight fans don't want to hear that, but it's true. You know, that meeting really forced PBC's hand. It made life very difficult for them as a content provider. Had it never happened, they likely would have been able to give fans, you know, better quality TV, certainly on the Showtime fights, and they would have been able to bring along their pay-per-view stars more slowly and profitably. And I think going back to the Ruiz fight, PBC went from only three months ago having a chance to control every single heavyweight belt and potentially just print money on Fox pay-per-view to having no belts right now. And ESPN is actually now a Kubrat Pulev upset over AJ away from controlling all the belts. That's also a hard pill to swallow. I mean, especially if you've been forced to give all your guys pay raises in order to keep control of things. I mean, you know, if you're wondering why Ludabella is not promoting shows, this kind of came out recently in the media, but it didn't, you know, you didn't need to read the report to, to wonder why Ludabella is no longer promoting shows for PBC. I mean, just think about everything I've laid out here. You know, and actually, like, while we're on it, while it was great for Wilder and some of the PBC heavyweights, that meeting probably wasn't good for the majority of other PBC fighters, the PBC organization as a whole, and the, you know, fans who watch Fox and FS1 and Showtime. I mean, if I was a, at PBC as an employee, I would have been really pissed about the whole thing. It's not I'm, like I'm not even trying to denigrate PBC. I think they actually handled it really, really well. It just put them in an incredibly difficult position. If you're going to have a 
very early look as to whether Wilder should have taken the deal. I would say we aren't there yet. I mean, if it appears Wilder will end up making close to $100 million in three fights on pay-per-view and then one fight on regular showtime. And he would have made $120 million fighting AJ twice and two other opponents. That's the basic assumption right now. But there's a couple asterisks there. He probably wouldn't have made the $70 million he's already made. And let's say the 90 to $100 million he'll end up making with the rematch had he not attended the meeting, first of all. So the meeting alone gave him a huge pay raise. And that's not totally fair because I think the push behind the Fury fight has sort of pushed him into the mainstream. And I think the bigger issue here is because Anthony Joshua lost to Andy Ruiz, the first fight that Deontay would have had with AJ wouldn't have been till May or June this year on the zone. So he, if you think about that, he literally wouldn't have even fought AJ yet. Because remember, DeZone was going to have him do the Brazil fight and then push him in with AJ after AJ did the Ruiz fight. He would have had to take a fight in the fall, not for $40 million against AJ, but rather for $20 million, you know, against another opponent. I mean, for him it was Ortiz on PBC, but, you know, probably an easier opponent on DeZone, but it doesn't matter. So if you think about just total cash outlay right now, Wilder would have only made $40 million on two fights and still had $80 million coming to him against Anthony Joshua in two fights this year. Instead, he's already made $70 million on three fights. He'll probably get close to $100 million in four fights by July. I'm not sure he would have gained the same amount of notoriety by beating or by, by fighting AJ after AJ had already lost. You know, you could also probably make the argument that it's actually much more likely Wilder would have knocked out Anthony Joshua in both fights, and Fury was all, you know always the more sort of skilled, dangerous fighter. But that's totally Monday morning quarterbacking the whole decision. I mean, you know, at the time, Fury seemed more vulnerable because, you know, while most people I think would have said he's the most talented fighter of those three, um, or and easily the most talented fighter in the heavyweight division, even if you're counting Ruiz and Usyk at that top level, which are debatable at this point, uh, to say the least. You know, Fury is also the most likely to self-combust. And remember, like, we've not seen the rubber match yet between Fury and Wilder, and Wilder could easily knock out Fury, like I laid out above, and we could be headed for a fourth fight that could be bigger than any of the previous three. I mean, I think the major takeaway here is we're still seeing this pay, this play out. Um, and a lot depends on how Wilder responds to the adversity he's facing here. Going back to PBC, and let's just look here for a second at PBC top rank, you know, ESPN Fox. Let's let's just do a quick little thing here. I mean, if Wilder knocks out Fury, there's still pathways to PBC becoming the leader in the heavyweight division again. I mean. The fight appears to be headed for July. If Wilder wins by KO, he can go back onto Fox and do pay-per-view fights there. And there'll also be unfinished business because they'll have drawn. Fury will have knocked out Wilder. Wilder will have knocked out Fury by that point. And you could easily make a fourth fight uh, between Wilder and Fury. But you can also, in the meantime, or you know, you can probably have whoever wins the Ruiz-Ortiz fight, hopefully Ruiz for PBC's sake, because I think 
you'd really want to make Wilder Ruiz. That's a big fight that would really sell well on pay-per-view, especially if Wilder has a belt. You know, if, you know, if we're looking at the sort of ESPN and Fury side, right now, Fury was, you know, he'll, he's basically the baddest man on the planet. I mean, you know, we'll see what, if ESPN and Top Rank can do for Fury what Conor McGregor is doing for ESPN and UFC, which is sell a ton of pay-per-views and giving them a ton of content. I mean, McGregor certainly has a big head start right now, but Fury will still be undefeated. The draw will look like a weird anomaly, especially if he wins by knockout again in the rubber match. I mean, like, this guy can become a huge star. All the ingredients are there. And, you know... (laughs) Really, the only limit on his stardom in America is he's not American. You know, if he was Hispanic American, it's really, truly all the ingredients. But, you know, he's not. But he still has, just by the way he talks uh, and, and sort of by how crazy he is, he, he still has a lot of advantages and can become a big star and carry his own pay-per-view fights in the future, especially if he wins by knockout again. I don't want to spend too much time going off on tangents for what happens, you know, for after a third fight, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I do want to say a quick note on whether these guys are going to fight AJ at all. I do think that's very possible. Honestly, I think I actually think it's quite likely to happen, especially if it's Fury in late 2020 or early 2021. Um, I just think after after AJ's already taken a loss, after Fury almost lost by getting cut to Valine. Even if Wilder wins the rematch after he's lost, you know, I'm not sure either promoter will want to risk too much more marination on this. And I think with the Saudi site fee money out there, I really think the key question is figuring out how you can make potential U.S. pay-per-view revenue part of the event and whether U.S. pay-per-view revenue will outweigh United Kingdom pay-per-view revenue. Because if the Saudi money is good enough, the event can still take place. You know, I think the, the key question there is, do you put it on UK pay-per-view and free TV in the United States? And between the site fee and the UK pay-per-view, is that going to be good enough? Does the Saudi site fee lower at all? if you try to do it in the U.S. pay-per-view window, which means it'd be happening at a really weird time in Saudi Arabia and and obviously really early morning in the U.K. Um, Those are really the key questions. I mean, I know DAZN probably doesn't want to hear that, especially with the U.S. pay-per-view revenue, but that's really what you're weighing. And if if the U.S. pay-per-view revenue isn't, going to be impactful enough and the Saudi site fee is high enough, I think you'll, you, you, whether it's DAZN, ESPN Plus, whether it's some kind of shared broadcast, whether it's some kind of home and home, you know, where the first fight's on pay-per-view, the second fight isn't, whatever it is, I think you will figure that out because I just think there's enough money there. Um, you know, whatever it is, <laughs> DAZN won't get away with paying under a $5 million uh feed to broadcast it like they did last time for the Saudi event. I mean, you know, when there's this much money at stake, usually these things happen. I think that's basically 
uh, what it is. If, if you're asking me overall, what is the most likely sequence of events to happen? I'd probably say Fury wins the rematch in July and they actually don't make the fight for the end of the year. So Fury ends up fighting someone like Big Baby Miller on pay-per-view after that. Um, and then Anthony Joshua just takes care of his mandatories and they go at it in early 2021. I think that's... Uh, and you can kind of test... Fury's solo pay-per-view value after both Wilder fights and sort of that's your litmus test for whether the fight goes on at a weird hour in Saudi Arabia and is worth the U.S. pay-per-view money. So I think I think that's pr – if, if you're asking me to what's the most likely sequel events, that's it for me. So one final note, there was lots of talk – about piracy for this fight. Kevin Eoli, in fact, wrote a really good piece on this. I'd encourage everybody to read it. I'm probably not on this. So from I'm I'm taking a very 30,000-foot view on this. Historically, there's always been a lot of piracy on pay-per-view. Not a I, and I shouldn't say a lot. There's always been some piracy. And I think some places have gone to great extents to combat it. UFC is certainly a great example of this. HBO and Showtime, though, both have traditionally really gone after piracy. Boxing's lack of a central authority actually kind of hurts it here. And quite frankly, I actually think the digital pay-per-views, like when you do robust digital pay-per-views, that really hurts it quite a bit because I think it's much easier to pirate digital uh, pay-per-view purchases than purchases through the cable system. The cable system actually has some pretty good... Uh, not foolproof, but but pretty good ways of deterring piracy uh, with their systems. And actually, I do feel really strongly about this because it is intellectual property, and I, actually, I just think it's morally wrong to steal intellectual property. And I also think that most of the people, not all, but most of the people who steal these feeds don't have any intention of ever purchasing the pay-per-view. Uh, they're just people who wouldn't buy it if they were forced to pony up $80 for it. They're not people who would pony up $80 for it and who are watching it at no cost. You know, they're, I'll watch it no matter what, um, but if I can get it for free, I'll do it. I think that's actually like a, a smaller sliver than you think of people who do this. I think most of the piracy is with people who never would never spend the money no matter what. Um, but there's lots of counter-arguments to that, you know, and I think that could probably be its own deep dive at a certain point. I'm not, I don't want that to come off as if that's, you know, the final word. Like, it's certainly not. I think, I think there's a lot of room for debate in this. Okay, so let's move on to the preview section. There is a Showbox card actually tomorrow night, Friday, February 28th, from Las Vegas, Keith Hunter, Michael Hunter's brother, up against the late replacement in Sanjarbek Rachmanov. Hunter's about a minus 250, so like two and a half, three to one uh, favorite, depending on what book you look at. There's a few decent in the card fights as well. Then the bigger one, and, and really a great card, on Saturday, February 29th, from Frisco, Texas, and on to Zone. We have Mikey Garcia fighting Jesse Vargas at welterweight. 
Also in the card, Cal Yafai is fighting Chocolatito Gonzalez for Yafai's WBA Junior Bantamweight title. And then Julio Cesar Martinez fights Jay Harris for Martinez's WBC Flyweight title. A few other names in the card, including Joseph Parker, Israel Majramov, none of whom were really in competitive fights. So this is just a really, really strong card overall. Mikey Garcia is about a four or five going favorite against Jesse Vargas, but Vargas here absolutely has pathways to victory. I mean, we have yet to see Mikey Garcia have a strong showing against any fighter with a ton of size on Mikey, and we we have yet to see an indication that he's that Garcia is able to hang with bigger guys. I mean, Spence is in a different category just because I think he's like a generational talent, um, but Mikey didn't look great against Sergey Lipinets. Anyways, Mikey's clearly more skilled than Vargas, but Vargas is a large welterweight. He's totally a live dog, in my opinion, and I really I expect to see a good fight here. You know, probably going the distance. Good fight, though. Khalid Yifai is barely a favorite against Chocolatito. I mean, the line has moved... It was closer to 2-1 to one when it started. It's essentially a coin flip now. Great fight. I probably don't need to even go into too much more detail. Chocolatito is a legend. This is a crossroads fight for him in his career. You know, Martinez is a bigger favorite, like between 10 and 20-1 to one over Jay Harris. Uh, the other fights are, you know, they're bigger favorites. But the two fights in the main event and then that third fight, uh, the two, you know, the main event, the co-main, that third fight, like, those, the two fights are great fights, and that third fight with Martinez and Harris, that should be really good TV. Let's move to Saturday, March 7th, from Manchester, England, and on to zone. Usually I don't go over these kind of fight cards, but I'll definitely take Scott Quigg versus Joan O'Carroll. That's a junior lightweight. There, Callum Johnson versus Igor McCalkin is also on the card. But let's just talk about the main event for a second. That's a coin flip, Quigg versus Carroll. On the, it's basically even odds with, with all the gambling sites. Definitely worth checking out, in my opinion. They're also, is a crossroads element to this. Is you know, I won't go as far as it's loser leaves town, but there's definitely like these guys have had really, you know, especially Quig has had a, a, a really nice career, and I think this is a great fight. So then on Saturday, March 7th, from New York and on Fox, we have Adam Kanowski fighting Robert Hellenius in a WBA title eliminator, also on the card, FA Jagbe versus Raznan Kojanu. And Frank Sanchez versus Joey DeWaco. No odds out on this yet, but for me, this is actually kind of a lot like the plant card. I don't really think the main event is that competitive. That's a total showcase. The undercards are going to be interesting. I mean, normally, if it weren't for his last performance, Ajagbo would probably be a huge favorite against Kojanu, but uh, (laughs) you never know based on his last performance. I still think Ajagbo will probably win by knockout, but this could produce some really strong TV. I mean, Frank Sanchez versus Joey DeWaco, I'm definitely, that's, I'm into that. That's a, that's, you know, that's a great, I really think that's a great test, uh, for both guys. So look, good stuff. We had a great weekend. Um, Fury Wilder two was awesome. I think Fury Wilder three will also be awesome. Wilder Fury one was awesome. It's great to have heavyweights back in our lives. I think the pay-per-view number they did was not a bad number at all. It kind of, kind of felt like a lot of people felt like it was soft or disappointing. You know, I, I still think, could they have done better? Yes. But 
I, I do feel like heavyweight boxing is back. That's still a really strong number, and I think it can only grow from here, especially if the big guys you know, really start fighting each other. And, and I think there's a lot of compe- com- really compelling storylines at heavyweight. Uh, this, this really could... We could be seeing a new era of, of commercial success coming uh, at a weight class that's long been, you know, dormant is not the right word because obviously it just it was just sort of happening in Germany. Uh, but to the American public, it, it hasn't been here. And I'm really excited for it to be back. We should celebrate it. Um, and there's a great fight coming up this weekend. So great fight card on zone. Enjoy that. I will talk to you guys in two weeks. Give a fuck.